0: It's the Code St. Luke podcast, where you'll hear interesting topics and people brought together through the Code St. Luke Public Library. Hello, everyone. Welcome to Lockdown Viewing with Code St. Luke librarian Stephen Tomlinson. And this is a program of 20 or more minutes where I talk about movies and television while providing some recommendations for what to watch and where to watch them. Today. I'd like to recommend one rather very marvelous movie, a movie entitled The Dig, as in digging something up of historical importance from under the earth. And this movie, The Dig, is available to view on Netflix. But I'll also be talking about some of the very important historical background behind the film. The Dig is a 2021 British historical drama made by the 35 year old movie and theater director Simon Stone, who is previously best known for his 2016 movie entitled The Daughter. It features the actors Ray Fiennes and Carrie Mulligan in the two central performances uh, Fiennes as an inspired amateur working class archaeologist, and Mulligan as the sickly wealthy widow who has hired him to dig up some large, rather curious mounds on her extensive property. The Dig is based on the 2007 novel of the same title by writer John Preston, which depicts with varying degrees of faithfulness, and this is true of the movie as well, the events behind the real-life 1939 archaeological excavation of Sutton Hoo, the gravesite of a probable Anglo-Saxon king who lived and died in the 7th century AD in what is now Suffolk, England, which is on the coastal southeast corner of the country. The movie is set, and quite significantly so, entirely in the months just before the outbreak of World War II in September of 1939. And it is very much in the class-conscious tradition Of British heritage dramas from Upstairs Downstairs to Downton Abbey. The dig runs at just under two hours and I think it's a little bit interesting to dig a little into the background of the movie and take us up to 1939 where as I said um, the events of the film are entirely situated. To begin in 1910, a mansion with 15 bedrooms was built near the village of Sutton on the Suffolk coast. And in 1926, that mansion and its surrounding land, on which existed up to 20 large earthen mounds, apparently man-made earthen mounds, was purchased by one Colonel Frank Pretty, a retired military officer who had just recently married But in 1934, Pretty died, leaving a widow, Edith Pretty, and young son, Robert. Now, in the film, Edith is played by Carrie Mulligan, an actress more than 20 years younger than the woman that she is portraying. And that is arguably a little problematic, as her character was in reality um, older than the one played by Fiennes. And it's very important to the relationship. I think that there's a certain equivalency in age between the two characters, but more about that later. What I think happened is that Mulligan had replaced, at fairly short notice, her fellow actress Nicole Kidman, who had been originally cast to play the character and dropped out for unknown reasons. And I think that may account for the age discrepancy between the character as written for the movie and the actress playing her. Nevertheless, maybe in the end it's it's not such a big deal. It certainly won't spoil spoil your enjoyment of the movie. But back to the story, the real life story. In nineteen thirty seven, Edith Pretty, while beset by grave health concerns that would eventually lead to her death just five years later, uh, at the age of fifty seven, uh, decided to organize an excavation of those mounds, and through the Ipswich Museum, Ipswich being the largest city in the area, obtained the services of one Basil Brown to do so. Now, Brown was a very interesting and accomplished man, Um, someone from a very working class background, um, an autodidact, uh, a self-taught archaeologist who had left school at age 12, learned several European languages and became a recognized authority in the fields of not only archaeology, but also astronomy. And at the time in which the film begins, he has taken up full-time investigation of Roman sites for the museum. And in the film, as I said, he is, of course, played by Rafe Fiennes, and really marvelously so, I might add. Now, in June of 1938, Edith Pretty took Basil Brown to the site and offered him a job and accommodation uh, along with a wage of 30 shillings a week and suggested that he start digging at what became known as Mound Number 1. But because Brown determined early on that it had been disturbed by apparent grave robbers, he, in consultation with the Ipswich Museum, decided instead to open three smaller mounds. These, however... Only revealed fragmented artifacts as the mounds had themselves been robbed of valuable items. And it was undecided as to whether um, the site was of an early Anglo Saxon provenance or one of demonstrating Viking presence. Nevertheless, in May of 1939, Brown did begin work on mound number one helped by Preti's servants and staff. And this is something um, seemingly uniquely British, at least as something that I would um, quite clearly associate associate with uh, British heritage drama. So it's not exactly a fully professional undertaking at this point. It's just Brown and Pretty's servants and staff. But what Brown and the workers did was dig a trench from one end of the mound, and on the third day, they discovered an iron rivet, which Brown identified as a ship's rivet. By the way, there is depicted in the movie the collapse of that trench upon Brown, where he almost loses his life. But in reality, that never happened, though it does convey a certain metaphorical significance in the telling of the story, which I will get to shortly. Other items were soon found and the colossal size of the find itself became apparent. After several weeks of patiently removing earth from the ship's hull, the excavators reached a burial chamber, much like that of Tutankhamen, the ancient Egyptian pharaoh. And not that it was physically like that with the same objects. What I mean is that it, um, it had a similar importance and demonstrated that there was a very important figure buried here. And what the film does with each stage of the revealing of the buried treasure... Um, the burial ship and its many belongings, it also reveals, in a kind of parallel manner, something of the inner lives of the characters involved. And that's why I, 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 I suggested a certain metaphorical aspect to what was happening with Brown in that scene where he is buried in the trench, only to be rescued by... Um, Edith and her staff and servants. Now, The Dig, if you follow that logic, is both a literal, archaeological one, but also, as I'm suggesting here, a metaphorical kind of unearthing that leads us in the audience to a greater understanding of the characters in the movie, principally Edith Pretty and Basil Brown, but other figures too. And there is um, a kind of a ghostly image of the buried ship, which is revealed during these excavations. And that ghost effect was the result of sand discolored and reshaped or hardened in outline by the organic matter, which had rotted away over the centuries. In other words, the ship, the ship, which Brown and the workers found, which had been wooden, of course, The wood, however, had long since disintegrated, leaving just the outline of the ship. And in the movie, that image functions, to my eye, rather poetically, to connect these real-life characters in 1939 with that past centuries earlier. And in doing so, it suggests how that past is so how the past in general is so important, informing not only the lives of these characters but by extension the lives of our own, like a ghostly but still palpable presence. And indeed, you might even say that this is very much the the theme of the movie. Now, not long after the discovery of the ship's burial chamber, which is well depicted in the film, um, what happens is it, it, seems become, it becomes apparent that something tremendous has been, f- been found here and word has gotten out. And so the British Museum, led by a Cambridge archaeologist named Charles Phillips, steps in and basically takes over immediate responsibility for the excavation of the burial chamber. In fact, according to a contemporary British museum expert on Sutton Hoo and the findings there, a woman named Sue Brunning, um, who was featured as a consultant in the making of the film, the entire physical look of the excavation is quite accurate as depicted in the film. But alongside that physical authenticity in the movie, she says the filmmakers got something else completely right. And that is the emotional experience of doing archaeology. Now, most of us will never have that experience, so it really is quite fascinating to see to, to see it conveyed um, in the movie. I mean, the wonder of discovery comes through so well, so well. And there is a particular scene where where we we see this, we feel this, when um, the character, the real life character of Peggy Piggott, who is um, unhappily married in the film and is portrayed by actress Lily James, she unearths the, she unearths the first gold object. She digs up the first gold object from the trench, just as the real Peggy did in 1939. And when that, And when that happens in the movie, all sound evaporates on the soundtrack, except for her breathing. And... Bruning, the real-life um, expert from the British Museum who acted as a consultant on the film, she says of this, and I'm, allow me to quote her here, this is absolutely what it feels like to make an important discovery. Your colleagues, their chatter and bustle, it all vanishes, and you just, it, 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 it just becomes you and the thing, you and the thing alone together, until word gets out about what you found. I mean, it's a sacred moment to be the first person to see and touch something that was last seen and touched over a millennium ago. End quote. However, less accurate to the film um, is that while the Phillips team from Cambridge University and the British Museum did include Peggy Piggott and her husband, Stuart. In reality, there is no evidence of any on-site extramarital affair as is depicted in the movie. Rather superfluously, at least in my view. And what's more, her affair is presented as one involving Edith Pretty's entirely fictionalized cousin, someone who's soon to be flying for the RAF. So there. There's this very romantic component brought to the movie, almost as if the movie did not trust in the integrity of its story and felt it was perhaps not commercial enough and so had to include this entirely fictionalized romantic aspect. Now, late in the movie, um, an inquest determines, uh, just as it happened in real life, that all the artifacts found at the site belonged to Edith Pretty as the landowner. Now that surprised me somewhat. I would have thought otherwise, um, just assuming that's, that such a find of a, you know of, of great historical importance, um, that the state you know would have immediately intervened to claim the treasure via some <laughs> pre-existing legal domain, but such was not the case. However, It won't surprise you to learn, I'm sure, that Edith Pretty soon bequeathed everything found on her property to the British Museum as a gift to the nation, as it were, so that the meaning and excitement of the discovery might be shared by the entire country. And in a postscript to the film, uh, uh, we learn that uh, at the outbreak of World War II, the treasures were put in storage in a London tube station before finding their eventual home at the British Museum. The importance of Sutton Hoo, why is it so important? Sutton Hoo, as opposed to the village of Sutton itself, actually refers to the site of these 20 earthen mounds in what is essentially an early medieval, mostly pagan, cemetery. The most important find, the, the ship burial of which I've spoken, was itself discovered under the largest of these mounds in 1939 and is certainly regarded as one of the most magnificent archaeological finds in England, for both its size and its completeness. This is why the archaeological dig at Sutton Hoo is so important, and which is conveyed so well by the movie. That dig helped to fill in an understanding of what was going on in Anglo-Saxon Britain between the end of the Roman presence in the early 5th century AD and that of the arrival of the Vikings in the late 8th century AD. Instead of being a completely dark age comprised of nothing but marauding Germanic tribes that had mixed with largely barbarous indigenous elements, the findings at Sutton Hoo demonstrated that there was present here a people that had art, commerce, and far-reaching connections to worlds beyond Southeast England, such as silverware from Byzantium, objects from Asia, coins from France, and much else. There were also indicators both of pagan and Christian religion, which suggests that this was a period very much in transition from one era to another. And the find has also been important for another reason, the profound public interest that it generated in the British public just before the outbreak of World War II. And the sense of national pride and connection to the past that it helped bring about at this very crucial moment. And this, this is something that the movie exploits to great effect. That these relics of a relatively sophisticated but lost civilization in England, in the England of the early medieval period, turned up just as the England of 1939 was faced with a potentially catastrophic war with Nazi Germany. So fittingly, there is much, mostly subdued nationalism on display in the movie, as when the stuffy Cambridge archaeologist Charles Phillips gives a speech to visitors to the Sutton Hoo site, and he has to shout to be heard above the roar of a spitfire. A little now about the real-life figure of Basil Brown, as played in the movie by Ray Fiennes. Brown regarded himself rather modestly as merely an excavator rather than an archaeologist. Perhaps he felt, on some level, intimidated by his social betters. Producer Ellie Wood has said, although it took a long time, her determination that the dig would be made into a movie never faltered. I think it was because of Basil Brown's story, she said. Due to class and intellectual snobbery, his invaluable work in digging up and securing the treasure went unrecognized for so long, and I felt it was really important that more people should know what he achieved. You know, in fact, Brown's name was not mentioned in the British Museum's permanent display of the Sutton Hoo treasures until relatively recently. But although his crucial contribution is now acknowledged, there is much that remains uncertain about the ship burial. Who exactly was it honoring? The lead candidate is Radwald, a powerful regional leader, who died around 625 and was part of a dynasty that claimed descent from the Norse god Woden? He was the first English king to begin the transition to Christianity while also apparently being careful enough not to upset the pagan gods. I think he was probably kind of hedging his bets here. And Edith Pretty. The real-life Edith Pretty, on whose land the treasure was discovered, and is played so beautifully and quite sympathetically in the movie by Carrie Mulligan, was herself from a family of wealthy industrialists. She was well-traveled and certainly well-acquainted with archaeological digs from an early age, but perhaps not as well-educated as she might have liked, having been offered a place at London University as a young woman, but having it blocked by her father, who thought that such a possibility was unbefitting a lady of the Victorian era. Pretty was, however, known for her very public and charitable works in England, and she also worked for the Red Cross in France during World War I. Something very interesting about her is that she married relatively late in life, especially for a person of that era, at age 42, and gave birth to her only son, Robert, at the age of 47. And although the film makes no or little mention of it, the real-life Edith Pretty was also very interested in spiritualism, something not unusual in her time. And spiritualism is something that purports to enable the living to communicate with the dead. I kind of think of a a Ouija board. Although I'm sure it's more complicated than that. Um, But, you know, I think that this omission from the movie is an unfortunate one. Because, of course, that is exactly what archaeology is all about. A kind of spiritualism, you know, in, in digging up the past. And communicating with it as well, in effect, that that's what's happening through archaeology. You know, a contemporary people is able to kind of conduct uh, a ghost-like dialogue, however scientifically um, arrived at with the past. And this fact, I think, would have well served the overarching theme of the movie, so it's A little surprising to me that really nothing of Edith Priti's spiritualism is at all mentioned in the movie. Now, in recognition of her gift to the nation, though, again, this is something not depicted in the movie, only mentioned in the postscript, Prime Minister Winston Churchill offered Edith Priti the honor of a CBE, an award-signifying commander of the British Empire. But she declined for reasons that I think are largely mysterious, but which I would speculate have much to do with her curious mix of both self-sacrifice and a quiet need of privacy. She was a very private, very lonely individual. As I said earlier, Edith Pretty died in 1942 at the age of 59. Most of her estate was placed in trust for her young son Robert. Robert himself passed away in 1988 at the age of 57. And in the late 20th century, both the house and the Sutton Hoo burial site as a whole, the land, um, were bequeathed by Edith's descendants to the National Trust. Remember, the treasures are already in the British Museum. And it is the National Trust of Great Britain which now manages the site and where thousands of tourists visit each week, um, COVID, of course, notwithstanding. You know, after the historical aspect and importance of the Hutton's um, Sue uh, findings, um, I think this movie is best defined by the understatement in the performances in the central relationship between the Carey Mulligan and Rafe Fiennes characters, which on a couple of occasions hint at the possibility of a romance where their social situations and upbringing somewhat more closely aligned. But wisely, I think the film really never strays too far in that regard. Certainly there is no basis, in fact, for the possibility of such a romantic entanglement. And instead the movie is content to reveal a certain kindredship, and this is very important, in relation to the importance that each character places on the past and how that past through them functions as a kind of continuum in which both they and we might find great meaning and take a kind of solace in our own somewhat isolated individuality or even great loneliness in the case of many of us including the characters the principal characters of the movie you know I mean that individuals are never truly alone whether they are Basil Brown or Edith Pretty or us in the audience and through that I think we come to a larger more meaningful understanding of our place in the continuum of history and culture, insofar as it is so much greater than we are as these individual atoms within a much more meaningful and beautiful whole. Something else that I like about the movie is the cinematography, which is quite lush and conveys well the lonely beauty of the countryside, which is very suggestive of this loneliness that I've spoken about in the characters the central characters especially it's not something the movie makes a lot of but it's definitely there and not in just in the two principles either uh it's certainly there in the character of the young archaeologist peggy who um conducts in the course of the movie uh, an extramarital affair it's quite clear that her husband um is not attracted to her and that uh, uh that she must find uh, a more satisfying relationship elsewhere. Things that are arguably less successful about the movie include both the fairly broad caricature of the academic archaeologist Charles Mm -hmm. Philip and that entirely contrived romantic drama between the two secondary characters, which I... I just referred to and have mentioned earlier, which, you know, really feels like it's been added on to shore up a lack of potential mainstream appeal. Though, to be fair, it does underscore that, you know, a a certain motif present in so much British heritage drama of this sort, which is, you know, that repressed desire that runs through so many um, characters, and not not only in recent uh, examples like um, Downton Abbey, or even Upstairs Downstairs from 40 or more years ago. But, of course, in, uh, well, I'm thinking of E.M. Um, e. Forster novels of the Edwardian period or so many great social realist works of the uh, Victorian era. And that's something, that, uh, that's something that we can find in this movie, too. So there's that, that kind of continuum present here as well. Another kind of continuum that's present in the movie is a class that I've already spoken a little bit about it—the class-based dynamic, which is such an important aspect of English social history—and is a real factor in this movie, especially in the relationship of the two principal characters, Edith Pretty and Basil Brown. Um, You know. But in the absence of any true villainy, I mean these, you know, we, we have these two figures as as kindred spirits, as I've said. There's no sense of, of of class-based tension between them. Um so I really think it seems to have been unnecessarily played up in that the figure of the stuffy snobbish academic archaeologist Charles Phillips is kind of present as if he were a, a necessary convention of the genre, and one which audiences have come to expect, though, um, you know, viewers of similar material um, will certainly have seen this far too often in recent years, so I think it's become something of a cliché. And the film might have been a, a little stronger uh, without it, however strong it already is. More I th- more effective, I think, is the depiction of Basil Bronson. Very interesting, and increasingly, as the film progresses, paternal relationship with Edith's young son, Robert, both a boy, he's eight years old, without a father, and one finding a kind of solace with, from the distressing, gradual realization of his mother's ailing health by being in the company of Brown, whom film critic Mark Kermode has written, and I quote him here, is someone with a touch of eternity about him. And that's so true. Through Basil Brown, the young Robert comes to see a world in which the past is never completely lost, which as I've said, is very much the theme of this movie and chimes so well with the undercurrents of both mortality and a kind of living legacy playing out in the story of both his mother and the findings at Sutton Hoo itself. I love this movie. I mean, at its best, The Dig is an altogether quiet reflection on the fleeting nature of life, the ever-present shadow of death, and in the words of another critic, Will Gombert's, our deep primal connection to the past and the soil from which we quite literally both come and return to. Okay, that's all for now, folks. I hope you've enjoyed this recommendation and talk about the movie The Dig, as well as background information related to it. The Dig is available to view on Netflix. Um, Please join me next week at this time for more movie and television talk. You've been listening to Lockdown Viewing with co-St. Luke librarian Stephen Tomlinson. Remember, if you have any comments or questions, you can best reach me at tomlinson at co saintlukeorg or by means of the library's Facebook page, or even by calling the library at 514-485-6900 and leaving a message. All the best, happy viewing, and bye-bye for now. Thank you for listening to the Code St. Luke podcast today. We launched the podcast and telephone broadcasting service in March 2020. The idea was to get content from Parks and Recreation and the library into your homes using Zoom, telephone, and podcasts. If you enjoy the podcast, please give it a rating and review at Apple Podcasts, and share it with your friends. For more information about programs at the library, visit csllibrary.org. For information about the City of Code St. Luke, visit codest.luke.org. Have a great day.